Last Sunday, Pastor Joel unfolded for us from the book of Colossians the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ, how He deserves to have first place in our life because He is, after all, the image of the invisible God. We can know God because He is God enfleshed, that He's the creator of everything in heaven and earth, everything you can see, everything you can't see, all earthly powers, all angelic powers, that He's the one who reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His cross, that He's also the one who's created the new creation, the church, and he's the head of the body because he's the firstborn from the dead. And that in all those things, Jesus Christ is worthy to have the supremacy, the first place, the preeminence in your life. I hope that as you've been reflecting on it this week, you realize that that has a lot of implications for your life. And one of those implications is the very motivation for why we serve him. Corrie ten Boom, survivor of the Holocaust, had a great ministry for Christ after those days and demonstrated tremendous forgiveness. She said this, that the measure of a life after all is not its duration, but its donation. In other words, the measure of a life is ministry. And every one of us, I think, have this deep desire to make a difference in our life. And the older we get, the more important that is. We have our small group Bible study that my wife and I lead, and we did a little fun thing last Sunday night. We did a total of the age of everyone in there. I'm not going to give you the number of people in that group, but the total uh, of every person in the group was 921 years. And so I asked him a question. I said, what is it that makes life meaningful? We've, we've had 921 years of life experience. What is it that makes life meaningful? And this, the answer was united. It's relationships. And in the context of that relationship, we do ministry. You know, there's, there's two kinds of people here this morning sitting in this gathering. First of all, there are a lot of you that are serving Christ in some way or the other. Matter of fact, one of the things that I love about Chapel Point is how many people are engaged in some kind of ministry. And then there's some of you that have not yet engaged in ministry. Well, for those of you that are already serving... I want to just say that I hope that this message today kind of helps you recalibrate, re-energize, and refocus your ministry on why you're doing what you're doing. And if you're not doing ministry, then I hope you'll get in the game, get off the, play, the stands and into the playing field, and, and find a way that you can make a difference for Jesus Christ, because this one who is preeminent is worthy of that. You see, the life that satisfies is a life of service because of the sufficiency of Christ. This one who is, is supreme and preeminent is also the sufficiency of our ministry. If you turn with me to the book of Colossians, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul, when he came to the end of that previous paragraph, kind of stitches together where he's going next. So in verse um, 23 of chapter 1 of Colossians, if you look there, uh, Paul said at the end of that, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, and then notice this, under, under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister or a servant. And he's going to then, in the next paragraph, develop that further. He's, Paul's going to talk about his ministry from verse 24 down into chapter 2, verse 5. He's going to discuss that with us, and he's going to share some insights about what motivated him to serve Jesus Christ and to make a difference in that way. When you think about this, why is it that we serve, and who is it that we serve? 
What is it that ought to be that source of, of guidance and empowerment and strength in, in our ministry? It is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's so interesting to me that this morning when I was just doing my Bible reading, I happened to be just in the plan I'm following this year in Exodus chapter 3 of all places. And if you're familiar with that passage, it's where Moses encounters the living God at the burning bush. And, and God is saying to Moses, 80 years old, I'm going to send you to Egypt. I'm going to send you in to Pharaoh to confront the man in the position that wanted to kill you before. And you're going to let my people go. And, and Moses' response was to be overwhelmed and to make excuses. Ultimately, he says, here am I, send Aaron. You know, that's actually where he winds up. And, and you know, God meets with him there and he says, I am that I am. I am your sufficiency. And what Moses discovered over the next 40 years of his life is that ministry is done not in your own ability, but in the power of God. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 24, because he talks first that serving Christ results in joyful suffering, because Christ is our example in suffering. Verse 24, now Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the Christ. Now, normally in our thinking, joy and suffering aren't in the same sentence. And yet in the Bible, we find that continually. James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, rejoice in your trials. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about suffering, in 1 Peter chapter 1, suffering and the value of that suffering. Now, I don't think that Paul is rejoicing because he's suffering. He's, he's rejoicing in the results of his suffering. And Paul suffered a great deal. If you want to look at the list of all the suffering that Paul had done, read um, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. All of the things he went through, beatings and imprisonment and all the struggles that he had. And he did that because of Christ. Uh, Paul here talks about the fact that, that his suffering was for the believers there. He said, my suffering is for your sake. Paul, as an apostle, was suffering for the church. Not only for the church in um, Colossae, but the, he said, I'm suffering for the sake of his body, the church. So Paul saw his suffering on behalf of other believers. He was struggling and he was suffering for Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm doing that for others. You know, it's actually the reality that wherever the church has ever known persecution, it's usually the leaders of the church, it's pastors and other leaders, missionaries, evangelists, that often are the ones that are killed or persecuted. I remember when I was a student in Bible college, there was a great persecution that happened in Chad, Africa. And a missionary that had greatly impacted my life was back speaking in chapel that day, and he, he talked about how pastors were being buried in anthills. They were being killed in front of their children and their wives. Why? Because the suffering, they were trying to cut off the leadership of the church by that persecution. Paul talks about the suffering that he's doing, and he said here, I'm trying to fill up the, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what's that about? Well, let me tell you what it's not about. Paul is not saying here that, that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, and I'm adding to it. Because the word that he uses here was never used for Christ's atoning, substitutionary death. It's a word that's used for pressure and persecution. 
What Paul is really saying is there's a suffering that Christ had on the cross when he said it is finished, and there's nothing to add to that. But there's an ongoing suffering of the body of Christ that Christ takes personally. Remember that it was Saul of Tarsus, who's now writing this as the Apostle Paul, who was there when Stephen was martyred. Paul's holding their coats. He's uh, overseeing that. And when he encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me. That's the suffering Paul's talking about here. Paul understood that there's a sense in which when the church suffers, Christ takes it personally. And Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer for Christ's sake, and that's a part of my ministry because Christ is my example in suffering. I just want to stop for a minute and ask you a question. Why is it that we often think that ministry ought to be easy? That it ought to be convenient? That it ought to keep us inside our comfort zone? You know, for Paul, his ministry took him way out of his comfort zone. For Moses, it took him way out of his comfort zone. Ministry is not only going to fit in your schedule. Ministry is not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be comfortable. But the question I am asking you today is if Christ suffered for us, then why would we not be willing to move out of our comfort zones and to be stretched and to suffer and to be inconvenienced in order to serve Christ and others? My friend, if you're limiting your ministry to that which is easy and comes natural and fits nice and tidy within a box you put it in, then you're probably not being stretched in ministry very much. Paul said, I'm willing to suffer. Secondly, notice what the Apostle Paul said in verse um, 25 to 27. He said, Suffering, serving Christ results in a privileged stewardship because of the sufficiency of Christ, and Christ is the source of our life. Verse 25, he said, of which I become a minister. That means Paul saw himself as a servant. According to the stewardship, the management of a household, like Joseph did in Potiphar's house, from God. This stewardship that he was given by, from God was given to me for you. So Paul saw his ministry as a service, but he also saw it as a stewardship. God had entrusted ministry to Paul. He was to manage part of God's household, and he was to do so for God, but also for others. And he describes what this was. He said that, that I could make the word of God fully known that the gospel could spread, that the Bible could be taught, that others could learn and grow and be evangelized and discipled. And then he describes what this message was, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Interesting that Paul would use the word mystery here. He uses it also in Ephesians. And the, the Gnostics, these false teachers that were infecting the church in Colossae and other places in the world, they had this idea of mystery. And their idea of mystery was something that, that could only be known by a select few. Uh, they, they had a mysticism mixed together with Jewish legalism, mixed together with philosophy, mixed together with what we would call New Age kind of thinking, all mixed together, and that was this Gnostic heresy. And, and only those that were initiated were really we're really in the in crowd. Uh, Paul uses their word in a different way. To Paul, a mystery is something that was unknown in the Old Testament. He says that here, 
a mis- this mystery that was um, hidden from ages and generations, he says, now is revealed not just to a select few, but to all the saints, all of God's people. What's the mystery? What's this thing that was unveiled and hidden It is now made known? Well, Paul uses this word a number of different ways, but in this passage, he's talking about this mystery that Gentiles would become one with Jews in this new thing called the church. And Paul says, I am the steward of this mystery. I have this message from God. And in addition to that, he says that Christ actually now dwells in the believer and and that Christ is in you the hope of glory. Paul says, I'm a steward of this incredible message of God that Gentiles who are on the outside are now on the inside when they trust Christ. That Jew and Gentile are together in this thing called the church and that Christ is now in you and you have the hope of glory. Within our church, there were two funerals this week. And the, the reality as I'm thinking about this is that Christ being in you now is like a down payment on your future resurrection body and all of heaven. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you, which gives that wonderful promise that we have, that mystery. My friends, think about this. You are a steward of the gospel, like Paul. You are a steward of the Bible. You are a steward of the mystery of God. And God doesn't want that just for a select few. He wants every believer to grow and mature through the word of God. He wants every person that hasn't heard the gospel to hear the gospel. You're a steward of that. By the way, you're also a steward of your spiritual gifts, the ability God has given to you to serve. How are you doing with your stewardship? How are you doing with managing and being faithful to what God has given you and called you to do? For some of you, you need to be just encouraged that what a privilege you have to say, I am a steward of God. Ultimately, Joseph wound up becoming the steward of all of Pharaoh's household. And we've got one up. We're a steward of all the riches of Jesus Christ and his grace. We're the steward of his message. We have the privilege of doing that because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's a privileged stewardship because Christ is the source of our life. Christ in us, the hope of glory. In verse 28, Paul continues his thought here about ministry, and he said, serving Christ results in a clear purpose because Christ is the measure of our maturity. He said, him, that is Christ, we proclaim. Paul's message wasn't himself. Paul's message wasn't simply a philosophy. Paul's message was Jesus Christ. He was the sum and substance of his message. Paul proclaimed Christ every time he spoke to a crowd, whether it was in the synagogue or on Mars Hill, whether it was in a street corner or it was in a church, Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ. This Christ that he had just talked about, who's the image of the invisible God, this Christ who's the creator, this Christ who's the reconciler, this Christ who's the head of the body of the church, he proclaimed Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what he did. Paul said, I proclaim him, and I'm warning every man, and I'm teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man mature in Christ. This is Paul's purpose. He said, I'm proclaiming Christ, but the purpose is that every believer, every man, every woman would become complete in Christ. Interesting that Paul 
speaks about this. He talks about um, wisdom and he talks about teaching. He said, I'm proclaiming this publicly. I'm teaching it in more of a, more of a casual setting and I'm proclaiming the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. That's my purpose. But my intention is that everyone would become mature in Christ. Again, the Gnostics used that word mature to speak of those who are initiated, not a novice. Not someone that was on the outside, but someone that was on the inside. But for Paul, he said, no, no, this is for all saints. This is for every man. Three times he says, every man I want to present complete in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul didn't see the church as the, these, this group of elite and everybody else. Paul saw everybody as being formed in Christ's likeness. Paul's purpose in all of his letters was that one thing. He wanted to see everybody become complete in Jesus Christ. My friend, I wish someone had told me when I was 18 years old that the purpose of life is to become like Jesus. It would have saved me a lot of headaches and heartaches. I, wouldn't have, I would not have complicated the Christian life so much. It would have cut through a whole lot of the mustard. It would have made things so much clearer for me. When I really came to understand that God's design for my life is one thing, that I would become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Because after all, he created me in his image, and that image got twisted and distorted by the fall, by sin. And now in redemption and restoration, God is reshaping and reforming me to become like his son. My friend, that's God's purpose for you too. Over and over again in the Bible, we're told that. Most of us can quote Romans 8.28, that all things work together for what? For good to them that... Love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. And for a lot of you, that verse doesn't make a lot of sense because life isn't easy. It's because we ignore the next verse. And the next verse tells us that his purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. I don't understand every trial and difficulty or temptation that I may face or you may face, but I do know this. God's ultimate purpose is to use every difficulty, every experience, every opportunity that you're in the Word of God to shape and conform you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Like a piece of wood on a lathe that's turning and turning and turning and turning and getting dizzy, and all of a sudden, the, the woodworker takes a knife and is cutting it, and if that piece of wood had a personality, it would say, ow, that hurts me. And we sometimes say, ow, that hurts me. And God's saying, just, I'm making you into a work of art. I'm conforming you into the image of my son. I'm making you more and more and more and more like Jesus. This is Paul's purpose. Because Christ is the measure of our maturity. To think like Christ. To have a character that's like Christ. To have relationships that are Christ-like. To have a life purpose that is like Christ. To pray like Christ. To, to relate to the Bible like Christ. To be able to have a, pers a perspective on people like Christ. To see people the way Jesus sees them. Paul says, that's my, that's my purpose. That's my purpose. Well, Paul continues on, and um, look what he says in, in verse 29. For to this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. To this, to this end, that every man would be complete in Christ and mature in Christ. He said, I'm, I'm doing this with an empowered struggle. He said, I'm struggling, but I'm empowered because Christ is the energizer of our ministry. Uh, 
take this apart a little bit in verse 29. He said, this I toil, that is the word from which we get our English word cope. He said, I'm coping with a lot. I'm facing a lot of difficulty. That's what Paul's talking about. He uses that for a wearisome toil. Ministry is not intended to be easy. That's why Paul, in the closing verse of 1 Corinthians 15, said that therefore be, that we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor, coping, is not in vain in the Lord. Same word. And then he uses another word. He said struggling. That's the word from which we get our word agonize. Matter of fact, it's, it's, it would sound like that if you pronounce it. Agonize. Paul said, I'm coping and I'm agonizing. He uses the same word in verse 1 of chapter 2 when he talks about the struggle that he's having. Paul's saying ministry is sometimes difficult. It's le- difficult labor. It is agonizing. And that word agonize actually is a word used in the athletic realm. Used for those who compete in the Colosseum. Kind of interesting that we're seeing the advertisings coming up now for the Winter Olympics in Korea. We got a few football games going on today, and in two weeks, another big game going on, right? I guarantee you, those athletes agonize as they are preparing. It's not easy, some of the exercise and the drills that they have to do, and the laborious preparation they have to go through in order to be conditioned for what they're going to do in downhill skiing or playing on a football field. Paul's using that kind of term here, an athletic term, and he said, ministry is sometimes agonizingly difficult. It's hard. I said, Paul, how do you cope with that? How do you agonize like that? He said, according to all his energy, there you go, that powerfully works in me. All his energy. And one of the the difficult things for me about wintertime here, I don't dislike snow. I don't really dislike most of the cold. And I have outside activities that I do. The hardest thing for me about winter is I can't drive my motorcycle in the winter. That's the hardest thing. And so every day when I, when I go out in the garage and I look out there, there's my motorcycle and Bert's motorcycle. We both have Harleys plugged into the wall that's just a trickle charger on the battery. And I'm just thinking, sooner or later, I'm going to take that trickle charger off. I'm going to fire those babies up, and we're heading back out on the road. And once we're back on the road, I don't need the trickle charger because it has an alternator. It recharges itself. Paul is saying here, Listen, the reason I can do this laborious uh, toil, the reason I can agonize in this athletic endeavor of ministry is because Christ is continually empowering me. He's continually uh, re-empowering my life. That's what Moses learned at the burning bush. Friends, ministry isn't just difficult, it's impossible for you to do. Jesus said it this way, talking about the vine and the branches, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing is a zero with the rim kicked off. It means nothing. You can't do this in your own strength. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You have the energy, the power of the risen Christ inside you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have the power of the Holy Spirit inside you. And Paul says, listen, my ministry is done. My ministry is done with, as an empowering struggle because Christ is empowering me for ministry. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. That's what we're saying again, so I'm going to. 
Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. And Paul says, God is the one who's energizing and empowering me for my ministry. My friend, that's why we believe in prayer at Chapel Point. Because we believe that it is in prayer that we are empowered to be able to serve. We can't teach a class. We can't lead as an elder. We can't minister to children. We can't do what needs to be done unless we're energized by God. And we're energized by God as we pray. That's how you plug into the power source to do that. Paul finally said, serving Christ results in church health. Look in chapter 2. In verse 2, he begins and he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am present in body, I'm, I'm with, absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wanted to see a healthy church develop in Colossae. Interesting thing is, Paul tells us in chapter 2 and verse 1 that he had never seen them face to face. Paul had never been to this church. He planted the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus planted the church in Colossae and Laodicea and, and Hierapolis. Paul had never been there. But Paul is saying, I want to see a healthy church. And he said, I want to encourage your I want you to be encouraged in heart. What does a healthy church look like? Well, Paul describes it to us here. A healthy church is one where believers are encouraging one another's hearts all the time. Giving each other the courage of God by that, by that word of encouragement, that note of encouragement, that text of encouragement. Paul said, encourage your hearts. And then secondly, he said, being knit together in love. Christmas this year, our youngest daughter, Rachel, gave me a, a gift. She handcrafted the scarf. And um, I'm, I wear it almost every day. And you know, I, I told someone in the office yesterday, when I put this scarf around me, I feel like Rachel's giving me a hug. And, and what she did is she took just balls of yarn and she knit it together. She crafted it together. And in so doing, she created the scarf. Well, Christ is knitting our hearts together in the church. That's what he's doing. He's creating unity and love that only Christ could do. You know, one of the things that's marvelous about the church when I think about it is how diverse and different we are. And yet, Christ is knitting together lives and love and small groups and ministry teams in the church as a whole. He's doing that in a way that only Christ could do. That's part of the healthy church, encouraging one another's hearts, knitting together in love, giving the, the riches, the riches, he said, of full assurance. We're helping each other have greater confidence in God, in other words. And we're understanding. Look at the words he uses here. Understanding and knowledge and in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul uses those same terms in his prayer in Colossians 1, 9, and 10 and talks about his plan, his prayer was that believers would grow in knowledge to have truth in context of relationship, that they would have understanding, insight into the meaning of it, and wisdom, the skill of living, so that they would walk worthy and that they would then be fruitful in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. 
To Paul, a healthy church was a church where every believer is growing to know God better in relationship based on the Bible, where everyone is growing in their insights and understanding, and they're growing in wisdom and in skill so that they can apply it to their life and they can serve better and become hungry for more knowledge. That's what he's saying. By the way, that's why we have point electives here. That's why we have Bible studies, so that every believer can grow in that way, because that's what makes a healthy church. That's why we're doing that. That also, Paul says, protects from false teaching, and a healthy church is one that's not being deluded, in verse 4, from plausible arguments. There's been false teaching every century in the church, and there still is today. There still is today. There are people in pulpits today that are promoting false doctrine, contradicting the gospel, contradicting the word of God. And Paul said, the only way that you can really spot the counterfeit is to know the real truth. You need to study the Bible to be able to do that. That's a healthy church. And he said, have good order. You will have good order, Paul said. I want you to be able to have good order, verse 5, which is actually a military term talking about people who march in line and then have a firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ, to have that stability that happens. Luke actually used that to speak of the paralytic's legs being healed. So Paul's purpose is that the church would be healthy. You know, Chapel Point is, is a church that is being transformed by God. But I can tell you that the heartbeat of our elders and the heartbeat of our pastors is that Chapel Point would be a healthy church. We're, we're satisfied to let God determine the size of the ministry. But we're responsible before God to determine the health of the ministry. You get that? God is the one who will determine the size of the ministry. We're trying to determine the health of the ministry. And Paul is saying that he's passionate about a healthy church. A healthy church. So what about you? Maybe you're already serving Jesus Christ. And you're, I'm looking at some of your faces and I'm saying, yeah, invested. Yep, making a difference. Pouring into other people. Thank you for what you're doing. And I want to say to every person that is serving in any ministry in this church, thank you for doing it. And I hope that Paul's example to us, his heartbeat for ministry and the sufficiency of Christ, can encourage you to go further for him and to do it with the right heart set and for the right reason. But some of you are sitting on the sidelines. You're spectators to the game. And I just want to say to you, it's time to get in the game. It's time that you discovered your ministry to do that. There's a new class that's going to be starting next week called Discovery. It's only three weeks long, and it's intended to help people find their spiritual gift and their place in ministry. We ought to have so many people in that class next week that we have to move it to, a, to another place. Sign up for that. Go boldly. Opportunity to learn how to share your faith and evangelize others. Josh Fuller, who made it safely back from Hawaii after the scare there, leading that class about how to engage with people in our culture intentionally for Jesus Christ. Think about some opportunities that are family ministry teams, children, child care, teachers, shepherding, serving, administrative, student ministry opportunity, welcome team with greeting and ushering, sports ministry, greeting it upward, coaching, organizing. 
uh, serving through facilities or in the office or in chairs, uh, picking them up and down all week long. Moving team, all of that going on. Point group leaders and champions. Marriage mentoring, we're having more increased need for marriage mentoring. Worship arts, do you know you don't have to play an instrument or sing to be in worship arts? There's so many other roles. So many other opportunities that are there. Or even outside of our church, through Love, Inc., and we talked about Alpha, great opportunities to be able to serve Jesus Christ. For this young mother, it was a mother's worst nightmare. It couldn't have been a worse situation. Her little boy had wanted to play the piano. And mom, for some reason, took this little five-year-old to a concert that was going to be a magnificent concert from one of the world's greatest pianists. And the lights dimmed. And when the mother reached over to tap her little five-year-old, she realized the chair was empty. And while she was trying to recover and decide what to do, the curtains opened. And there at the Steinway was her five-year-old playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star in front of this massive crowd. She's trying to figure out, what in the world do I do? And out came the great concert pianist, Pedowski. He sat down. He sat down next to the little boy. Don't worry, Nathan, I'm not going to play this. Sat down next to the little boy, put his arms around him, began to play the bass and improvise. Then he began to play in the higher keys and improvise. And he whispered in the little boy, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And this incredible, beautiful music as this little five-year-old is playing away, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And Padawarski adds what he could do to what only the little boy could do. That's the story of my life in ministry. Just serving Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes along power of Christ comes along and begins to fill in and to do what I could never do. So my friend, if you're saying, not me, I, I, I couldn't do this. Remember this. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected. Timothy had ulcers. Amos was only a fig tree pruner. Jacob was a liar. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas doubted. Jeremiah was depressed. Elijah was burned out. Martha was a worrywart. Samson had problems too. And What's your excuse? What's your excuse? Over all of redemptive history, God's been taking unworthy people and using them in incredible ways. Time to get out of the stands and onto the playing field. Time for you to say, I want to get in the game. I want to make a difference with my life. Don't let 2018 find you sitting in the stands when so much is at stake and so much has been provided for you to make a difference for Jesus Christ. It's time. It's time for you to find your place in serving Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I still stand amazed 
at how you use people, common, ordinary, common for variety, fishermen, and tax collectors, and Pharisees, and zealots, shepherds, how you use common, ordinary people to make such a difference. God, help us to believe that you want to do that with us and through us. Help us to believe that you have a place for us in the body of Christ. Oh God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to so lead and guide those that are here today that are not involved in serving you in any way whatsoever to come to an end of their excuses in the beginning of the adventure of serving you out of the sufficiency of Christ rather than their own insufficiency. Because God, what makes life meaningful is first of all knowing you and having a relationship with you. And then it's serving you. It's being a part of what you're doing in this world and transforming lives. Thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you that you've not only given to us um, the message, but you've given to us the power, the gifts, the calling, and that your calling in our life always means your enablement. So, Father, I pray. I pray also for those who are faithfully serving. Thank you for so many of them that are giving of themselves to advance the cause of Christ through this church. God, help them to be willing to continue to suffer for you. To continue to have a clear purpose of helping present everyone complete in Christ. To trust in your enablement and your empowerment. To be so clear that they are stewards of your word and of the mysteries of God. To help this church become a healthy church that would bring you glory and impact the lives of others. Father, I pray that you'll encourage the hearts of every servant of Christ in this place. May they count it a privilege. May we not complain or grumble when it's hard because of who we're serving and why we're serving. And because you are our sufficiency. You are the I am that I am of the burning bush. You're the one that called a shepherd boy like David and turned him into a king. Called fishermen and made them preachers of Pentecost. God, you're still doing that today. I pray that this morning there would be, be people here who have not been serving others, not serving you, They'd be so challenged that this year would be a year when they step onto the field and say, listen, I want to take my place. Help me. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen.